You're listening to the Mad River Anthology. I'm John Brugaletta. And I'm Rachel Wheeler. And we are doing a follow-up from the last program uh, we did in which we talked about the Annunciation of an Angel to, to Mary in first century Palestine. We've, we've seen some connections, some similarities between that and the Muse, um, or the Muses, there seems to have been nine of them according to the Greeks. Uh, the Muses who inspire writers and artists into a vision that seems to be more than is human much of the time. So, uh, being poets, Rachel and I seem to be, well, actually, she's also a musician, but um, for me, that uh, the muse is Erato, the name of the, the muse of lyric verse, and so that's what poets usually write about when they write to their muse. Mm. Um, Here's a poem by William Stafford called When I Met My Muse. I glanced at her and took my glasses off. They were still singing. They buzzed like a locust on the coffee table and then ceased. Her voice belled forth and the sunlight bent. I felt the ceiling arch and knew that nails up there took a new grip on whatever they touched. I am your own way of looking at things, she said. When you allow me to live with you, every glance at the world around you will be a sort of salvation. And I took her hand. That one, I think, uh, reads better on the page than aloud, but, but you still get some of the force of it, I think, listening to it. it. He's so spare with his words. It seems so deceptively simple, but then that's typical of Stafford. Um, the, the muse, however, is powerful. You can see that in what he says about her. And I think it's interesting in terms of what we spoke about last time that um, she says that when you allow me to live with you, so there's this kind of um, this sense that um, it's going to be an acceptance on the part of the poet, not not something that's automatically taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or forced mm-hmm. upon her. Or forced, right. Upon and, yeah. he, and he takes her hand, you know, the offered hand, and then William Stafford is um, in this poem saying that he took her hand. So there's an offering and there's an acceptance, and that seems to go along with what we talked about in Annunciation mm-hmm. last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, various poets take various approaches to their muse. This one is by a poet whose name seems to be Skippy. The title is, My Muse is in Bermuda. Another page surrenders in a crumpled flight to the trash. My pen has no inkling of what's going on. Brain just as confused. Ah, my muse is in Bermuda. I just got a postcard from him, dressed in those baggy shorts, lying on the beach near one of those fancy resorts. I can just imagine, poolside, with a piña colada and a chick on each arm doesn't surprise. He knows all the good lines, the ones he stole from me. They fall for this mutinous disguise, because 
He's got the stuff, baby. Don't you know he flaunts it well? Joe Cool with a smile whose mouth never shuts. And why should it? Tantalizing those tiny fems with every syllable, soothing their souls, speaking words that strip their hearts and other things. A swanky crooner that slithered off a schooner. Oh, what a time he's having. He said on the card, wish you were here. Be home soon. Right. Don't waste any words on me. I should shoot the little bastard. Let me see that. I think we have Skippy in the studio here. Is that true? No. No? No, no that's not mine. Okay. No, no. Well, you handed one that to me that's got your name crossed out that and another. So, oh. And I don't think that I can pronounce the names of these muses. Maybe you can introduce them because I'm okay. not familiar with all of them. Okay. Well, the classical. Uh, yeah. The, um, the Greeks, most of the Greeks, uh, ancient Greeks, uh, numbered nine muses. Calliope was the muse of epic poetry, not all poetry. Cleo was the muse of history. You can think of history as an art, but it was written often in verse form in mm. those days. Mm -hmm. Erato is the muse of lyric poetry. Euterpe is the muse of music. Uh, Melpomene is the muse of tragedy. Polyhymnia of choral poetry. Terpsichore, the muse of dance, of course. We speak of Terpsichorean things today. Thalia is the muse of comedy, and Urania, the muse of astronomy. And hmm. that, too, is a surprise that, that astronomy is an art. Yeah. <coughs> but, of course, if you're finding constellations, I guess it amounts to artistry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, this is one of John's poems. It's called Inhale. Milton conjured up the ghost of Yahweh to chant for him the story of the fall in organ echoing iambic lines. Greek oracles sat on tripods over fumaroles and spoke a secret tongue that only priests could riddle from. And Inca hierophants could hear within the chitter of the hummingbird a clue to what is now, has been, and is to be. Where did such grumps as Hesiod unearth Calliope, Arado, Terpsichore, and their half-dozen other sister muses? You'd think a people so adept at turning bare abstractions into characters would have produced more palpably than these. But all we know is that on certain days the wind flows into words, and certain nights a tune of vowels penetrates oak doors. I like how you allude to the mystery of it all in this, how, you know, it's easy to put a name to, to the source, but it really is a mysterious process. Yeah, and I think Robert Frost was was right when he talked about the idea for a poem coming like the sound of someone speaking through a closed door. Mm -hmm. You don't quite understand every word, but you hear the rise and fall of the voice, and you get some sense of of what emotions are being experienced there and, and what... Um, the kind of thing that's being said, mm -hmm. whether it's angry or happy or, or simply a conversation about something trivial. Mm -hmm. and, um, and you get a kind of cadence. And I think sometimes that's the way 
poetry comes to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. It's, but it's, it's interesting that for so many centuries, writers and artists have felt that, the, that their work, at least the seed for their work, came to them from outside themselves. And that's very hard, I find, for people who are not artists or writers to understand and believe. Now, you've written novels. Have you found that with your characters, at times, the, the dialogue they speak seems to just come from somewhere else? I have, yeah. And that's, I think, a common experience that a lot of fiction writers talk about, characters taking over their, yeah. own, their own doings and and actions even, um, not just the dialogue. And it is kind of a very spooky thing. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it just almost makes you feel like you're, you're just the, the medium for an idea coming, coming through and mm-hmm. being incarnated in, in words or, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Here's one that uh, is by Patricia Hamilton. Uh, called New Hire. She takes on the role of the, the muse here, the voice of the muse, interviewing a writer, a new writer, mm-hmm. for the job, New Hire. Let's get one thing straight. I don't care if you telecommute in your pajamas or wear anything at all for that matter. It's up to you if you want to give the meter reader a th- little thrill. But you must log into your laptop every single day. Oh, I know, that's no guarantee you won't be playing solitaire for seven hours straight. So the second thing is, I expect to see at least one word at the end of each workday. Nectarine or supple or glissando. But please, nothing smarmy. And go light on the adjectives. Nouns are better. If you concentrate, you can keep them from whizzing into the stratosphere of abstraction. Which reminds me, at your first performance review, I'll be examining your concrete-to-abstract ratios very closely. I want to see plenty of penguins, cornfields, and apricot jam. Also, please don't think at this stage in your career you can dispense with punctuation. Do people write equations without using pluses and minuses? Of course not. 56, 22, 34 isn't meaningless gibberish exactly, but it's so much easier to grasp the point if the equal sign is inserted in its proper place. Do I make myself clear? Benefits? Oh my, what an amusing question. I suppose the occasional weekend off is permissible. You'll discover your brain works overtime when it's feverish although it's debatable whether you'll be able to distill any viable similes afterward from your rantings. You're eligible for sick leave in the case of encephalitis, but under no circumstances do we pay quarterly bonuses. Work hours are flexible, however, and gazing out of windows for long periods is advisable, even necessary. Flights of fancy linking goldfinches to epistemology are welcome, And we encourage you to pursue a rich fantasy life as long as you steer clear of dwarves. 
Naturally, you may read on the job as much as you like. Pliny the Elder, Georgette Heyer, Spider-Man. And you already know that my sisters and I are the ones who invented the phrase bottomless cup of coffee. Now, when did you say you can start? Patricia is a former colleague of mine at Cal State Fullerton who now teaches at um, Union College in uh, Tennessee. Oh, wonderful. I think that's fun. It's very fun. And it reminds me somehow, too, of um, of of how there, this is kind of a balanced thing that we have to be reminded of, that, you know, the inspiration comes, but we also have to be disciplined. We have to be there ready for it. And and it's it's maybe a cop-out to always say, well, I'm going to wait until I'm inspired yeah. to write. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Here is another um, one by John called Inspiration. Finding its inception is as hard as it is to find the exact beginning of a river. Oh, there were hints, trivial things that held your attention as if you'd just been in a nearly fatal collision. A spider web in ruins, a white cat staring at you in silence, water circling in the wrong direction as it drained. You had nothing to say about these things. Weeks later, you watched as a female praying mantis chewed off the head of her mate while he continued their copulation. Dogs at the beach frisk and fetched in the surf. Instead of your usual walk, your eyes scanning the ground ahead, you felt like lying on your back in the grass, looking up in a tree that seemed to be growing in a pleasantly odd direction. In a few days, your jeans were too tight and you walked awkwardly. You felt there was something growing inside you, but pregnancy was impossible given the way you lived. Then you awoke one morning to find you had become a monsoon, a deluge of words, hardly any of them yours, drenching the pages, soaking them in a language no one had ever used before. Still, when the positive reviews came out, you accepted all congratulations, hardly noticing your own slight sense of guilt. Do you think that brings together the idea of impregnation and inspiration somewhat? I think it does, yeah. Mm. It's it's a good um, use of that metaphor, I think. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of having um, just thought about all the enunciation um, of that and how it, it would go along with Mary, too, that, you know, it's not something she did necessarily, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. Something she participated in. She participated in, and it was and the it was so positive afterwards. It would have been an interesting dilemma, I think, to take um, credit for it. I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I found this interesting. This next thing. Um, this was the day Robert Frost's poem "Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening" was first published in the New Republic magazine. Uh, in 1923. It's, um, it's his favorite of his own poems, and he called it his best bid for remembrance. Um, but this is one of his most popular poems, and the most popular po- poem in American literature, maybe. Uh, the, the circumstances of his writing it are what really interests me. Uh, he... Um, He wrote the first draft on a warm June morning. 
even though the poem's about winter. The night before, he had stayed up working at his kitchen table on a long, difficult poem called New Hampshire. He finally finished it and then looked up and saw that it was morning. He'd never worked all night on a poem before. Feeling relieved at the work he'd finished, he went outside and watched the sunrise. While he was outside, he suddenly got the idea for a new poem. So he rushed back inside his house and wrote Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening in just a few minutes. He said he wrote most of the poem almost without lifting his pen off the page. He said, it was as if I'd had a hallucination. Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening Whose woods these are I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Now that poem has evoked some discussion about what it means. Mm-hmm. And the, the famous poet and critic John Ciardi wrote uh, of it that it was a poem about a death wish, miles to go before I sleep. Mm-hmm. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. And uh, when this got back to Frost, he said, no, he didn't have anything like that in mind at all. But when you look at the poem, it's quite plausible that that is what the poem's about, even if the poet wasn't fully conscious of it. Mm-hmm. So that raises the possibility that the muse we're talking about is part of the unconscious mind, as Freud or... Jung, Carl Jung, would speak of it, that it's at a, in a, a part of us that is deeper than we are aware of. Mm-hmm. Do you have that feeling when, when you're writing sometimes? I think I do sometimes, I'm especially, you know, the first time through a poem, I'm not always sure what I'm trying to get at. You know, it takes much revision. I think that's a common process where we, we don't know what we're talking about until you know, it may take months or weeks or years before we really realize what we are writing about. And how, do, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> something to that effect. And certainly readers are going to see other things, too. So that brings up all sorts of critical problems, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. And much uh, has been written, I guess, about that. I don't want to, that could just go forever, I guess. That what does the text say and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I have one here by Julenta Schweitzer called Not a Valentine. It's a it's an English sonnet, uh, that is uh, the Shakespearean style uh, form of sonnet. And so it looks like a Valentine, but it's the title is not a Valentine. My muse is nothing like a day in June. She's hot or cold and never in between. 
Her face is wrinkled as your morning prune. She's either mud-caked or she is not clean. Her feet, iambic as a metronome, she rambles on, she prattles by the book. Each time I knock, I'm told she's not at home, but then I spy her in her window nook. She is no woman, but a noisome sprite. I will not say I love her, but I need her promptings as the day needs light, as life craves food, belief wants deed. You're waiting for and yet, there isn't one. She works at times, but she's not tons of fun. <laughs> so, it's interesting that uh, the Japanese and some other uh, cultures also have uh, muses. The Japanese have benzaiten, a name for uh, the Sanskrit Sarasvati um, Devi, which means goddess of flowing water the goddess of everything that flows, water, words, eloquence, music. So she's a all-purpose muse mm -hmm. among the Japanese. The um, Aztecs have, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to get this pronunciation right now, Xochiketzal Ichpuchtli. She's the Aztec goddess of love, marriage, flowers, art, music, women, magic, spinning, fertility, sex, weaving, and changes. Hmm. And then the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians had Hathor, who was the goddess of music, dance, foreign lands, that's a odd one, mm -hmm. fertility, love, and motherhood. I suppose music and dance are what make her a muse. Um, and, of course, that's where we get the, the word music is from the Greek musa, mm -hmm. from muse, the word amuse, the word museum, and we muse on things and, and so forth. It's uh, one of those um, etymological things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we have, we've had a lot of of poets through history who wrote to their muses at the beginning of a long work asking for asking for help from the muse. Homer starts the Odyssey, sing to me of the man muse, the man of twists and turns. That's Odysseus. Virgil in the beginning of the Aeneid says, O oh, muse, the causes and the crimes relate. Um, what goddess was provoked and whence her hate? translated by John Dryden, so it rhymes. Catullus in his first uh, song, Carmen, and so have them for yourself, whatever kind of book it is, and whatever sort, O oh patron muse, let it last for more than one generation. Uh, Dante Alighieri in Canto II of the Inferno, O oh muses, O oh high genius, aid me now. Milton, in the opening book, of Paradise Lost. Now this fascinates me, and I, uh, I, we need to talk about this. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us 
and regain the blissful seat. Sing, heavenly muse. Now, that's the Holy Spirit, hmm. of the Spirit of God, mm -hmm. whom he's taking as his muse, right? That sounds like it. Now, well, it's generally agreed that that's what he's, he means. Now, that seems to me to imply that he's equating himself with the prophets, those who wrote the Bible. Yeah, and speak speak the words of God, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the poetic and prophetic roles are often the same, right, in a lot I of people. I suppose, but does this have the authority? Does his Paradise Lost have the authority of the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, well, that's Milton, I, I guess. Mm -hmm. he, maybe he believed that. Shakespeare does this in... Uh, in the prologue of Henry V, a play, um, the chorus says, Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. Chaucer uses it in, in book two of his Troilus and Criseida, uh, a long poem. O oh, lady mine that call it art Cleo, thou be my speed for this forth and my muse. He feels he's writing history, so he, mm -hmm. he invokes the muse. And so, that was amusing. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Mad River Anthology. The engineer was Tim Ayers. I'm John Brugaletta. And I'm Rachel Wheeler. If you have questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. But be nice. On our blog, an online archive of past programs can be found at madriveranthology.wordpress.com. The show is also available in iTunes. The Mad River Anthology airs the second and fourth Sundays of the month at 10 p.m. and is produced for KHSU located at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California. <laughs>